welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. I read this, we're continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer. Very excited about this. I read in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, you may have come across this report by a a social researcher, did a survey, Mark McCrindle, and uh, last month around Australia, researching and uh, surveying a number of people, found that more than a third of Australians, 35%, said that because of the recent upheaval in society and COVID-19, they were praying more. More than, th- more than a third of Australians said they were praying more. 41% said they were thinking about God more. A quarter said they were reading the Bible more. This is not just interviewing Christians. This was a broader survey tapping into what people were doing and responding to what's going on. Nearly half of those surveyed, 47%, said that they had thought more about their mortality and the meaning of life. Mr McCrindle said the research is showing that this COVID situation has rattled Australians and got them thinking about the big purpose of life. It's got them reprioritising their life. Well, that is good news because, and that is what we've been praying for, that um, in amongst, in amidst the disruption and distress caused by COVID-19, that God will touch hearts and that people will turn to him and discover him and consider him, yeah? And so that's what we've been praying for. And if you're, like this survey says, inclined to be praying more because of what's going on in the world, well, then run with that inclination. It's a good one. It's a very good uh, inclination to follow. Um, And if you're not sure exactly what to pray or how to pray, well, you've come to the right place today because we're looking at what Jesus taught us about how to pray. The disciples actually came to him, Luke records, uh, how they came and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And in in response to their request, he then gave them and us what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we're reading, uh, it's in Luke, but it's also in Matthew, and we're reading the version that uh, Matthew recorded. Uh, And you read it in Matthew 6. It might come up on the screen. I'll read it for you. Jesus said to pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins or debts as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) When I say that, I feel like I'm in primary school. Because when I was in primary school in year six, Mrs. Davis, let me tell you about Mrs. Davis. Mrs. Davis was one of those fearsome, awesome, scary, ancient teachers that you had in primary school. Like she was so old. She was biblically old. She was like really just old, man. She was so old. But she was full of energy. She was sharp. She was tough. We were totally afraid of her and we loved her as well. 
because she was really good at teaching and we learned a lot of things. And you didn't mess with Mrs. Davis. You remember these sort of teachers? And uh, she, she, sort of, she had a reputation. She was very, everyone in the whole school was afraid of her. Um, and the poor little kids, I remember in our year six class, she would, of course, in those days, the teacher's desk was at the front of the class next to the blackboard and all the kids were in lines in our desks. And uh, she had a dry uh, wit and a, su- a sense of humour that was so subtle, no primary school kids could ever know if she was joking. She just sounded angry. <laughs> but that we, you'd sort of think, I think she's joking. I'm not sure. Don't risk it. Don't laugh. And she may not be. I don't know. And she'll kill us with one of those looks if you get it wrong. And the poor, I remember the, um, the messengers would come in, poor little kids from like year three or year four. And they'd open the door, knock on the door, come in. And they'd open the door and they'd walk towards her desk and she'd say, do you live in a tent? And the little kid would be stopping halfway and going, and we'd, th- and we'd feel so sorry. We'd think, oh. And when the kids at the front of the class would be whispering, shut the door. It's, it's a joke. Don't laugh, but she's making a joke. Because they'd left the door open and that's what old cranky people joke by saying, do you live in a tent? Which was the idea of, well, you know, in other words, you don't. So the answer is, no, sorry, I don't live in a tent. I live in a house. Oh, houses have doors. Oh, you want me to shut the door? But you can't just say, why don't you tell me to shut the door? So that was her way of, that was, you know, little things about, and you, oh, and kids, kids. What kid? What is that? A baby goat? Children. Children is the word. Did you ever have teachers like that? They didn't like the word kids. And uh, and I remember when my my mate and I got caught out for cheating. Well, who says we were cheating? We had the same incorrect answers in our maths test several times on the page, and we sat next to each other. And so all she could say was Simon and Chris. Hmm. Great minds think alike. And we'll look at, and I'm thinking, I think we're in trouble, but, but maybe that's a joke, but I don't know what it means. And, 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 anyway, and for years, I'm thinking, great minds. Oh, and it's, probably it was about year 11, you know, that I realised, oh, that was a joke. I get it. We were great minds. Anyway, so that was Mrs. Davis. But what, what she used to do in her traditional tough way was to have us stand behind our desks every morning and recite the Lord's Prayer. And you know, that was the first Christian input I had in my life. In year six, I had no Christian upbringing. upbringing. The fa- the, my family w- w- were not Christians. My mum had a faith that she was keeping private uh, and, and no one in our extended family had a, uh, an expression of their Christian faith, if, if they had any. Uh, I had no experience. I had never been to a church service. And, uh, and I remember just hearing the Lord's Prayer and saying the Lord's Prayer and of course could learn it by rote learning just what it meant. I didn't really know what it meant but just knew what to say. Oh, the only other other Christian input I had was in that same year my mate Tom, who was a Christian, witnessed by saying, when you die, God's going to read out all the bad things you did. (laughs) And that was it. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) <laughs> that freaked me out. And, <laughs> but God bless Tom. I did keep in touch with him. We went to different high schools. And, and yet we had some connection. Anyway, he ended up helping me go to a Christian camp years later. And uh, that was the first sort of Christian experience in groups of people. That, but, but this, the Lord's Prayer for me, it, it sowed a seed. And, you know, I was talking the Gideon's Bible. The Gideons are full of stories about how lives have been changed just by hearing the words of God, the word of God, just by hearing something from the Bible. And so 
it witnessed, and even though I didn't understand it, it was just something sewn in there, and I'm grateful for that. But of course, it's better to not just recite it and to repeat it, uh, but to pray it and to understand that Jesus gave us this to have a, a meaningful outline that will help us connect with God, that will help us to pray, that will help us to work through some stuff. And that's why we're unpacking what Jesus is teaching and, and leading us to. Now, last week, Ruth started looking at the first part where we're told to begin with our Father who is in heaven. So that's awesome because it positions us to worship God, to recognise who he really is. And, and this flows into the next section that we'll look at today, which says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So those three petitions at the beginning of the prayer, God, hallowed be your name or, or may your name be greatly honoured, our Father in heaven, worship God, and then your kingdom come, your will be done. These are all focusing on God. And in fact, the, the prayer has three more petitions, which we'll look at in the future weeks, and that's all about us, our provision, our forgiveness, our godliness. Lord, give us, you know, our daily bread and forgive us and lead us not into temptation, help us. And so we'll get onto that. But notice that Jesus wants us to get our perspective on life right by starting with God. We focus on God. We look to God. And of course, that isn't easy. Because naturally, in our base, natural inner self, there's a voice that says, I don't want to pray, Lord, God, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. There's something that says, what about my kingdom and my will? I want, I want to pray the opposite. Some, some little voice in there that's, that, that's wanting to pray, Lord, help me make my kingdom come. Lord, could you just come and affirm my plans and bless what I want to do because it's all about me. And so that's, that's kind of where our, uh, you know, natural self comes uh, into conflict with, with God's will um, because we just have our own idea of our own way of living and our own little kingdom that we want to get on and rule. Um, but here we are confronted with this prayer. If we really think about it, Lord, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, we've got to ask ourselves, do I really want what I'm really praying? You know, because that is, to, be, to pray that honestly, are you prepared for the consequences of that prayer? I, I, you know, because to, to pray that, are you really ready to do what that means, which is to surrender and submit to God? To, to really, because that prayer reflects complete humility before God. It is basically saying, look, God, I accept that you should and can and will be now in charge of my life. That's, that's why Jesus said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. But if you hang on to your life, you'll lose it. So there's a promise there, but there's also an indication of the commitment and the action that we've got to undertake to go, well, I want to hang on to it or will I lose it? Will I let God be really God of my life. And, and of course, this flies in the face, flies against the culture of the world that we live in. You know, we just finished over a number of weeks talking about the kingdom culture, God's kingdom culture and how it's different to the worldly culture. And again, you know, the world around us, it's all about me. I'm first, I'm in charge, I want this, I, it's my desires, my plans, my ambitions, my goals. And, um, and of course, kingdom culture 
starts with recognising who really is king and letting him be king in here, in my heart and starting here and saying, well, God, I, I surrender and I invite you to be Lord and leader and ruler and reigning over my life. And, and when we say God's kingdom, I mean, we touched on this some weeks ago, but think about it. In our world and now life, we're not so familiar with kings. There's not many kings left on earth. Uh, we have, you know, mainly democratic governments. Um, but for them, it, the initial hearers had caught their attention when Jesus started talking about the kingdom uh, not just because they knew about kings, there are a lot more kings in, in, the, in the world around there, but especially for the Jewish people, because they were longing for God's kingdom to come. They, you know, the Old Testament's full of prophecies about the coming king, the Messiah, the promised one, who is going to come and, and set up a new kingdom. And they were particularly desperate for that to happen because of the Roman occupation. As you may know, at that time, Rome was the most devastatingly successful, dominating civilization the world had ever seen. And they had come in and just flattened cities and civilizations and cultures and, and just brought in their fearsome rule. And that had happened in the time just before Jesus came to earth. And so, I mean, imagine, you know, if you ride or drive, that would be boring, but if you are smart, you would ride to Wollombi, uh, as Josh is proposing, anyone with a motorcycle, very welcome <clears throat> this afternoon, those, you know. Uh, if you go out to Wollombi, there's a little museum there, and you will see evidence of the planned Japanese occupation of Australia to the point that they printed Australian yen in World War II. Now, we know that they had to go at Darwin, but that was just only the beginning. Their plan was to totally dominate and uh, overcome our whole nation and praise the Lord for the allies and the troops and sacrifice that so many made against the, uh, you know, yellow peril, as it was called, and the Nazis of Germany and, and fought for free uh, a free world. Um, but imagine if our nation had been overrun by a foreign power and you had their troops marching your streets, taking over your government buildings and your institutions and, and extracting taxes, extra taxes that they send to their homeland and inflicting fear into society because of their presence. And that's exactly what was going on there. And then Jesus comes along, comes along and, he says, and he starts talking about the kingdom of God. So people are probably thinking, hey, this is exciting. This is great. This is what we've been looking for. This is going to be a great military victory over the Romans. Surely we're going to get rid of them finally, these awful oppressors. This will be a restoration of the earthly king of Israel, like the glory days, David and Solomon. Well, of course, that's not what God's kingdom essentially is. And if they looked twice at Jesus, they'd probably realise actually, that's really not what you're talking about, is it? Because you don't look like a military guy. And you've got these, you know, unschooled ruffians hanging out with you and you're talking about the kingdom of God coming and because the kingdom of God isn't about military occupation or political force or any other, you know, earthly show of force, which is temporary, but it's about eternal, spiritual and personal rule because God comes to rule in our hearts, not just you know, in our geographical situation. 
And that was a challenge for them to grasp and for people to grasp today. Charles um, Ellicott, the famous English theologian, he commentated, uh, he commented on this passage. In his, he's got a commentary you can look up. And he said this, God's kingdom was not, like the kingdoms of the world, one that rested on the despotism of might, but on the acknowledgement of righteousness. It was therefore ever growing to a completeness which it has never yet reached. And therefore we pray that it may come in its fullness, that all created beings may bring their wills into harmony with God's will. And so we pray for God to be our king, for his kingdom to come, to be the Lord and leader over our lives and our families, our church, our community, our nation. And that's a good thing because we live our best lives when they are surrendered to God, when we are submitted to his lordship and letting him help us figure out how to navigate our way through life rather, like I said, than us just, you know, being our own little boss of our little piece of turf and just getting it all wrong. So then this carries on this concept of surrender and submission to God's sovereignty uh, to, you know, the prayer of the will of God, to pray the will of God. Now, of course, some people have thought, oh, well, this is just resigning to fate, saying, oh, God, your will, let it be whatever, if it be thy will. But, just, but this is not a prayer that is just passive resignation or, or a mere acceptance of the inevitable because the will of God is mysteriously bound up inside the lives and the prayers of the people that follow him. And this same guy, Charles Ellicott, commented on that verse, the section that says, Lord, your will be done. He said this, the will of God is in part dependent on our wills so that it will not be done unless we so pray. That is mind-blowing. That, that is, that is, um, that's really profound, that our prayers actually help to see God's will fulfilled on the earth. That's, you know, because Jesus could have said this. Look, this is what you should pray. Lord, please give us strength to just cope with life. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on down here. So can you just help us get through it? And then when we die, we'll see you in heaven. That's where your kingdom is. And we're looking forward to it. Amen. That sort of makes sense. That's all I would trust people to pray with. If I was Jesus, I'd have a look. No offense, but I'd have a look at you and think, all right. Uh, I'll do what I can while I'm here, God. What, you give me three years? All right, fine. And then you want me to teach him how to pray? Well, just bunker down, guys. Try not to mess up too much. I'll be back. All right? I'll fix up the mess. This is what you should pray. Lord, help us cope. Try not to kill each other too, much, too often. And please come back soon. Amen. That would be what I would leave if I was Jesus. God is a lot more trusting. It's, it's amazing. He says, I want you to pray that God would come, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, that you, you can actually make things happen with your prayers. So prayer is not just like, oh God, sorry for my sin, thank you, give me a ticket to heaven, yeah, put it in my back pocket, and then every morning I wake up and say, oh God, help me get through the day, I mean, you know, prayer is like this powerful deal, this weighty, important challenge and calling on Christians that Jesus has given us. And so, uh, I'm, of course, in heaven, God's will is done perfectly. 
There's no opposition. There's no devil. There's no sin. So there is blessing and salvation and harmonious relationships and perfect health and hope and peace and joy and purpose and fulfillment and all this stuff. And that's what Jesus says you can pray and should pray that would it come into this world. Now, of course, it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen perfectly. God's kingdom won't be completed till the end of time. But there are elements of God's kingdom that can and should come into our life, into our world. And we're the ones that are meant to make it happen. Isn't that amazing? Because when you read God's word, it, it shows us his will when you read the Bible. But it doesn't mean that it happens automatically. But when you read the promises and the kingdom principles for living that are in the word, you realize, oh, our prayers can bring this into effect into our lives and communities. And so this should make us appreciate how exciting and powerful and important prayer really is. Because like I said, this is a prayer that goes way beyond just, Lord, bless me. This is a prayer that stirs up faith and energy and tenacity and, and, and a bit of oomph that, that's in the Greek. Oomph, you can look it up. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 so, you know, the, you just don't have to look hard to see the consequences of sin and the works of the devil and how people have had all kinds of havoc go berserk in their lives. And rather than just say, oh dear, and change channels, God needs prayer warriors to go, oh God, let your kingdom come into this situation. Let your will be done. As it's perfectly done in heaven, we want that done here into this situation, into my friend's life, into this person's life, into that country's life, into our nation's life. And so these are prayers that we are called to pray. And so we've got to be bold and brave. I feel very stirred when I think about this. And, but of course, there's personal cost because it might mean that you just give up a little bit of downtime to press into this kind of prayer and into God's presence. It might mean that you have to turn off a screen in order to turn to God. Oh, well, you know. And of course, sometimes people have been actually quite persecuted for standing up for God, for honouring God, for praying to God. But it's worth it. You know, last week Ruth shared about Daniel. You know, um, in the Old Testament, you read the book of Daniel, and he's one of many Jewish people who were overrun by the Babylonian Empire and taken into captivity. They didn't kill them all. They were smart. They said, and particularly guys like Daniel, they recognised people who were smart, had skills, and they said, right, come and serve in Babylon. So there's Daniel in a pagan country. They worship all kinds of weird and wacky, stupid, false gods, and he's upholding his faith, worshipping the one true God, but serving in the courts of the kings. And he works his way up. He's like a minister in their government. People are jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. And at one point, there's an edict that says um, everyone has to worship the king as if he's a god. And Daniel, and Ruth pointed out, Daniel was so brave, he just went home, kept up his regular prayer habit with the windows of his house open and prayed three times a day, loudly, out the window, to Jehovah, not idiot God, you know, and, and to the king, false God. You know, he was praying, for, well, that's very brave. That was good. That's what Ruth said. She didn't tell you the whole story, though, because he paid a little price for that. Because the guys that had said to the king, hey, we want you to, you know, make this edict. Everyone has to pray to your name. And if they don't, then they should get, well, what was the punishment? Thrown into the lion's den. Oh, and this is not well-fed lions at the zoo where you might survive for 
five seconds. You know, these were designed to kill people. It was a form of torturous execution. And, uh, and so they set it up. So sure enough, they find Daniel and the king likes him. They go to the king, Darius at the time, and they say, Daniel's been caught praying. Oh, not da- I like Daniel. But the king says, well, that's the law. I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry, mate. And he, the king, honestly, it's quite for a king at that time. You know, they didn't sort of mess around and apologise very often, but he's, he's really quite apologetic, but still has to throw him into the lion's head. And you may know the story. I think it's just a brilliant picture. I would love to have you know, send a drone back into in, in time and sort of, you know, get a film. Maybe we'll hear all these stories in heaven, get the whole deal. So they, so they throw him into the lion's den. They seal it up with a stone. And, uh, and of course, the king is anxious to know what happened. Well, the Bible says God sent an angel that shut the mouths of the lions. And I just think, what an image, because they are hungry as, right? I mean, i got a golden retriever, and he'll take your hand off if you don't, you know, hover your piece of toast carefully enough. And, and, but lions are next level. So they're like, yeah, dinner, here we go. And Daniel's like, oh, God, here I go, I'm coming home. Ah! And then he fills his muzzle and, and licking. And, and there's the lions, they're like, and, and he's like, Leo, are you having trouble? I am. I'm hungry, but I can't eat the guy, you know. And, and he thinks he's, Daniel thinks he's dead meat, literally, you know, just, oh. And, and they lick and smell and muzzle. And after a while, and I just think after a while, they're probably like, I don't know what is going on, but this is not dinner. And Daniel's like, what, guys? Wow. Hi. <laughs> you don't want to eat me? We can't. We want to, but we can't. And I reckon they would have just bunked down for the night. They're all cuddling in. He's scratching him. Oh, thank you. A little to the left, you know. And, and he's just muzzling in. And then in the morning, they roll the stone away. Oh, Daniel, in a bed, this, all these nice big furry pets just patting him. Morning, you know. And they're all just, I just, anyway, I personally think that that's a wonderful image, whatever went on. The point is he survived miraculously. And so, you, so will you if you get thrown into the lion's den, which you probably won't. Physically, even literally, it's probably not that bad. But the point is you can pay a price for standing up for God for your faith, but God will look after you if you do pay the price. You know? And so that's an extreme example of the trials that some people go through in standing up for God and for praying for his will to be done. But... Look, praying this way that I'm talking about doesn't mean your life will be terrible and tough. Because sadly, throughout history, the Christian life has been presented as really boring, really sad. Like as if to be more godly means you will automatically have less fun. That if you get close to God and really want to do his will, you're going to be this sad, insipid kind of you know, Christian who serves God and prays to God, but they just have this pathetic life. And that is so far from the truth. Because the reality, you know, in this passage that we're reading where Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, that's part of the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, I should say, which is regarded as the most famous speech in human history. Even non-Christian literary experts would acknowledge that. And when you read on a few verses later, 
he starts talking about what people worry about and our needs. He says, oh, people are worried about what they're going to eat and what they're going to drink. And then he sums up with this powerful promise how God treats all that. And you may know this first, maybe it'll come up, Matthew 6.33. He says, don't worry about all that, about what you're going to have and all the stuff you want in life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. All these things was, you know, the food that you eat and the clothes that you wear and all your material needs and stuff. And so again, when we submit and surrender to God and seek him and pray for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done, it's good for us, obviously, like we've saying, to get our eyes off ourselves, to prioritise God. But God will still have his eye on you. God will still want to bless you because he loves each one of us. He He's the perfect father. I mean, you know, my eldest son just became a father. So I talked to Hudson. We haven't seen them. You know, the hospital is all locked down. Hudson said the front of the hospital is hilarious. must look like a big mausoleum. All these people come with flowers and they can't go to the rooms. There's a big pile of flowers in the foyer. It's like, is this a funeral home or is it a hospital? So no one can go in. We haven't seen the baby or seen... But I've spoken to Hudson on the phone. So he's, you know... My first experience of being a father was with him and now he's a father for the very first time with his son and I was just sharing with him and of course it's wonderful and it's hard to put in words, it's overwhelming, parents, you know what it's like. Oh, you become... And I remember and I told Hudson, I said, I remember when you were born, uh, you know, your mother Ruth here was uh, in Hornsby Hospital and I still had to go to work in Chatswood a bit, not much, but I remember going to the chemist in Chatswood to buy a dummy and I remember just feeling like I was seven foot tall and that the world surely is watching me because I am a father. You know, and just walking into the chemist and I may have raised my voice. I remember asking, not just, oh, here's a dummy, how much is this? Thank you. I remember, I remember feeling like, don't you guys realise why I'm buying this dummy? <laughs> Excuse me, I'd like to buy this dummy for my son. <clears throat> And I don't know if everyone sort of bowed down or noticed or they should have, uh, you know, but it's just like, oh, a father. There was no trumpets. I don't remember the trumpets, but there should have been. You know, just like, and then walking, I just remember thinking, I am so, you know, proud and excited and overwhelmed and the, all the colours in the world were brighter and, ah, oh, you know, and, and that's how God feels about you. He's proud of you. He loves you. You're the apple of his eye. You're his chosen. And so we don't have to be afraid about praying, God, your will be done, because his will is awesome. It's not like, oh, God, if I pray your will be done, I'm not going to have any fun. I had all these plans. Oh, bummer. You know, I was going to, I thought I'd just give my life to you on a deathbed. How many times have people said that? Oh, I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'll give God my life when I die. Well, then watch where you walk. Boom, here comes a truck. You're a bit late. You know, you might just have to make your decision now and get it sorted now. And you won't have any more fun. You'll have a lot more fun with God. And, and so uh, the blessing of God, you know, is there for those who, and we'll discover more about that in the future weeks because Jesus invites us to actually pray for our own needs, to pray for our lives. But as it says in Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you desires that are in your heart. So he, we don't have to worry about that. We, he, you're going to get blessed when you 
press in and pray harder and deeper and stronger. Anyway, right now we're talking about this bigger picture. Praying God's will be done. And your kingdom to come. And they go together because God's will is for his kingdom to come. For the culture of his kingdom to invade and influence and impact the culture of our world today. So that there's love and forgiveness brought in where there's been pain and hurt and hatred. Where there's, there's faith coming into people's lives instead of fear. Where there's hope rising up instead of worry and anxiety about what's going on in the world today. And of course, bringing Jesus into people's hearts as they surrender to him, ask him to be Lord. And, and of course, this all happens just one soul at a time, but it builds momentum. And over the centuries of the church growing in all different ways all over the world, there's been seasons where the momentum is built and built and built, and then you have a revival a community-wide transformation of culture, a community-wide awareness of who Jesus really is. And, and that can happen. That has happened. Where people have got a fire burning in their hearts because the Holy Spirit's just come and lit that fire up. You know, um, John Wesley brought revival to England in the 1700s. And you've probably heard of him. He, he, you know, he was a very well-studied theologian, very gifted communicator. But it wasn't his natural abilities that brought the crowds, that turned the nation upside down. It was his prayer life. And he summed up why his ministry was so effective once when he was asked, you know, what's the deal about your life? And he simply said this, I set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. And I, I, I just oh, I think that is just a great thing to say, you know. And he could say it. I mean, I, I don't want to say it because I don't know if I'm burning hard enough. But <laughs> I think to be able to say that and have that as the passion, the reason, you know, the I think what a... Uh, let me finish with this story, and it's a bit about Wesley. Um, 150 years after he died, in about in the 1940s, uh, there was a group of American college students from a Christian college travelling around England and uh, they visited the rectory, <laughs> don't you love that word, the house where Wesley uh, had lived and it's now been kept as a museum and uh, all the students you know, walked around and they showed them upstairs and there was Wesley's old bedroom and next to the bed there's two indentations made in the carpet by his knees where he had spent hours and hours praying for souls to be saved and for revival to come and the carpet's been worn out in these two patches and they were showing this and then the students were all ushered to go back down and they went and got on the bus and um and the the, the teacher the lecturer organizing them all did a head count noticed he was missing one student he went back inside and heard a noise upstairs and he followed the sound upstairs back into Wesley's bedroom and there, kneeling in the exact same place where Wesley had been, was this student crying out, Lord, do it again. God, do it again. And that young man that was interrupted in his prayer was none other than Billy Graham. And they got him back down on the bus and of course God did do it again. And God will do it again. And I think today, who knows where the next John Wesley is? 
or who or who the next Billy Graham is or the next Amy Semple McPherson or Marie Woodworth Etta. Maybe they're here today. Maybe they're out in one of those kids' rooms. Who knows? What we do know is that every revival the world's ever seen has been preceded by prayer. It's always been ushered in by prayer. And not just the prayers of the famous evangelists or preachers, but the prayers of regular believers who cry out to God, Lord, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may we be those people. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.